This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Because if you can tell me what your habits are, I can tell you what sort of a person you are. I can tell you what your future looks like. But like I always say, life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% what you do about it. The people who are most effective in the workplace believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to The Circuit of Success, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve success in every facet of life. Only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Now, your host, Brett Gilliland. So, uh, our next speaker, speakers, that I'd like to introduce is Tom and Jen Satterley. So, Tom is a highly decorated combat veteran who, along with his teammates, was portrayed in the Oscar winning 2001 film Black Hawk Down. Tom served in the Army 25 years, 20 in the U.S. military's most elite Tier 1 unit, Delta Force, and has been involved in and led some of our nation's most important campaigns, which I'm sure he'll talk more about. As a member of Delta Force, Tom has been deployed countless times and led hundreds of missions. And beyond Tom's proven experience of leadership and critical decision-making in high-risk environments, Tom has also fought and is winning his own silent war off the battlefield, at one time coming close to taking his own life and becoming a statistic. Today, Tom and his wife, Jen, founded the All Secure Foundation, a nonprofit organization serving special operations warriors and also their families. His next mission in life is to help veterans who feel isolated in their struggle know that they are not alone and support them in healing from combat trauma. His book, All Secure, is scheduled for release later this year as well. So please welcome Tom, Jen, and Brett to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. All right, you're the closers. Uh Uh-oh. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) Is there alcohol involved? There is, right after this. All right. right, Well, let's get to it. (laughs) Maybe we can wheel the bar in. Anyone see if they can wheel the bar in here? Uh, I know everybody's thinking that. Right. One one more. Exactly. Well, uh, we are in for a treat. So uh, Tom, as I like to call him, is an American. Well, we're on video and audio here. So uh, he's an American hero is what I'm going to call you, Tom, because he is, and, uh, and what you and Jen are doing is amazing. So, but what I'd like to start, uh, Tom, if you could, maybe tell us the, the backstory of Tom Satterley, who Tom Satterley was before he became the true American hero. <laughs> wow. Um, life was a lot simpler back then. It was, uh, man, yeah, I'm a Hoosier, so a real one, though. I grew up in Indiana, Literally. so I'm a real one. <laughs> story about that, I, when I moved here, I found out about Hoosiers. Um, Thanks to her. So when I introduced her to my family in Indianapolis, I said, guess what Hoosiers are in Missouri? Go ahead, honey. Tell them. Yeah, so. It was an awesome welcoming. (laughs) Yeah, they loved her from day one. But um, the backstory for me is is like everybody else's. I mean, it's everybody's story. You you grow up wondering what you're going to do. You know, I grew up in small town Indiana. We had no money. I mean, we were were middle class, but I mean, everything I wanted I had to work for. Everything I learned, my parents taught me. I learned from my friends, and uh, I got to high school age, and, and, and one year, about a half a year after, and I was 
messing around with Indiana University, trying to figure my life out. And then a friend of mine had joined the military, and he came back, and he's like, it's great, it's awesome, you know, and he was getting to go to Germany for a couple of years. And on our way to a concert, I decided that I was going to do that as well. It was like just a decision between Columbus and Indianapolis, Indiana, about an hour or some drive. I decided to stop doing what I was doing, um, stop college at the time, and join the military and go for four years and get some money, you know, for college. And uh, I blinked, and 25 years later, I was retiring, wondering what happened. But um, yeah, I just wanted to chase my dreams. I wanted to. Um, well, actually, that's a lie. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't, <laughs> Back I didn't, it up. Reverse. I, I, I lied already, and this just started. Um, I didn't have a dream. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no clue. My friend said, hey, the Army's basic training is great. That's all he knew about. And uh, it sounded more exciting than swinging a hammer and, you know, putting on a roof or building and houses. And you were at John Cougar Mellencamp. And I was so at a John Cougar concert, so there was American flags waving, waving there. So. I decided to join that night and went home and told my parents. And uh, I got introduced to some things. I was in and out in four years for college money, and then I got introduced into some different training, French Commando School, German Ranger School, um, the Swiss March, which is 40 miles a day for five days in, in the Swiss Alps. And I realized that it wasn't as boring as it was. It was a motor pool Mondays, changing the oil in, a, in an armored vehicle every Monday, and driving around all winter with a broken heater. And it worked in the summer when you didn't want it. so. I realized that there was more to the military than just doing a job. You could actually create things, invent things, and, and, and change things. So I started going to other schools and lining up the rest of my career with Special Forces and Airborne School just to, just to guide my path. But I had no clue um, what I was doing in life until I made it happen. So I've got a lot of questions, but we're going to dive into the stuff because I, I know the crowd, and, and there's a lot of fun stuff that you've done, what well, we say that looks fun, it, that we've talked about this in the past. The, the Hollywood people make it look fun, right? And uh, in reality, it's not. But um, let's talk about the uh, next to Vietnam, the longest gun battle in the history of our military in Mogadishu with uh, Black Hawk Down. So if you could kind of take over from here and, and just share with our, our guests today that, that story, that day, what was supposed to be a quote-unquote oil change turned into what it is. Yeah, I, I get that question a lot, surprisingly, and it's how do you cram 18 hours of, of chaos into 10-ish minutes, and it's, and it's tough, and I've, I've, I've debated what to talk about. What, there's, there's no one story that captures it all. It's, we did five hits before 3 October, and they were all what I thought the military was, you know, you go out and fly in helicopters, you do cool stuff, you fast rope, guys are shooting at you. It's, it's like the commercials for the military and the Marines now. So lots of cool wanted. stuff. Warriors wanted those taglines get you going, you know. Um, Warriors wanted a few good men and all that. There's more than a few of them, and uh, there's a reason for it. There's, they, they die so fast. It's, they make it look good. And, and those first five missions of my military career in Delta or any, any, anywhere in the world were, were what I thought fast rope in, you fly in, guys are shooting at you, maybe, and then, you know, you win the day, you go home and you high-five and you tell stories about how cool it was, and you see with that, you see so-and-so fall down, you laugh a little bit. Nobody died. Um, nobody really got shot. Um, it's just like the, the recruitment commercials, and so I thought, this is cool. We are untouchable. We are the best in the world, and, and nobody can get you, and nobody tells you that a five-year-old with a gun can kill you, right? It takes, it takes very little skill to kill somebody. And uh, 
3 October changed immediately. Uh, I, was, I was out doing a five mile run. I was already dehydrated. The guys were playing volleyball. It was midday in, in the heat of Africa in Mogadishu. And Pager went off, never knew what it was. Pager goes off, you have no idea what it is. We had already worked out a plan. There's no time to catch these guys in town in a meeting by planning. So we just fly to the meeting and work it out, right? So everybody does the same thing every time. So the pager goes off, I sprint back as, as fast as I can. I throw my kit, most of the guys are already on the helicopter waiting. Um, we get on the helicopter, sit down, and somebody comes running out screaming with a piece of paper, look like stick figures and some squares on it. And he's pointing and screaming, and the, the blades of the helicopter are spinning. I'm looking at it going, uh-huh, yeah, 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 I got it exactly, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Because he's just screaming and pointing. And when, I, when, you, when you fast rope in or you try to land in a helicopter, you don't know where you're at anyway. You never land where you think you're gonna land. So that's the way that, that, that hit went. As Soon as we got to the target area, helicopters went to the roof. My helicopter went to fast rope. Too much sand, too much dirt. You can't see where you're going. And we were immediately taking fire. We, the hit was right near the black market, the Bakar market, where they sold RPGs, rocket-propelled grenades, um, RPKs, which are the machine guns that they use. We call them rapid people killers and AK-47s. That's where they sold them. And then we found out some years later that there was an Al-Qaeda training cell two blocks away that were right in the middle of a training session that decided to come join the party that day. And that was the first that we would be introduced to Al-Qaeda uh, back in 1993. They were already training and working, uh, working up a plan against us. So I knew right away people are getting shot and uh, Blackburn fell 90 feet out of the helicopter and hit the ground. So he had to, we had to make a plan to get him back immediately. Um, I was, my team was infilled three blocks outside of the target area, so we had to fight our way back in through the dirt. And when we got there, most of the target had gone down just as planned. So once again, a little bit of chaos. I'm thinking, we're back at it. I'm starting to crack jokes about making it back for dinner that night, and I hope they have, you know, whatever, chicken noodles or whatever. I don't I have no idea. Anything that didn't taste like cardboard. And we're still cracking jokes. And then, in our, and then a five-ton truck blows up outside, and... Uh, I'm like, okay, it's, it's heating up a little bit, you know? Well, now we got to move some people over to here and we have more injured and more killed. And then um, you hear the RPG go off, the explosion, the whoosh through the air, another secondary explosion when it detonates. And I hear this helicopter making a funny noise. I look up and I see it spinning out of, uh, out of control overhead off to the north and east. And as young as I was, I was 26 at the time, I, I knew, I knew that I wasn't going home. Um, we had to go get those guys on the helicopter and I figured they would all be dead. So that meant loading up all the detainees onto the convoy, sending the convoy back home while we made our way to the crash site to secure it. Meanwhile, they're shooting down another helicopter, and they shot up every helicopter and shot down two that day. Um, so we're fighting our way. There's, there's 100 of us, about 100 of us total, maybe 30 from Delta, 70-ish Rangers. Now take away some of those Rangers for the convoy take away some of the Delta guys for security and, and, and handling detainees. And there's a lot smaller force being chased by thousands upon thousands of Somalis street to street shooting at us. Every intersection we crossed was another outburst of, of explosions and gunfire. I had no idea what to do. We were just, I was just following the guys in front of me, trying to get to the proper street to turn north. And, um, even along the way, there was funny stories of donkeys, guys hiding behind donkeys. You could see six guys hiding behind a donkey trying to cross the street. And, and you just ended up shooting the donkeys and then to get shoot the people. And I tell you, in that three or four blocks that we, we ran, I, I don't know how many people I had to take their lives just to save other lives and just to get to where I was going.
And then that was, that was about the first hour of that day. Um, we turned north, and I was on the west side of the street, and I remember looking over and seeing a friend of mine engaging targets up the street another two blocks. I turned and was shooting at the same targets. I turned back, and then that fast, it was about a four-second, five-second period, they were dragging his body away. He'd been shot in the head, and that's when I realized my, my plastic helmet wasn't the proper helmet at the time. Um, we were dressed for, to be fast, lightweight and fast, in and out in an hour or less, and, and we were already past that time, and that's when I realized that the plastic helmet and me taking my Kevlar and sewing it as small as I could just to cover my chest so I would actually have Kevlar on um, was a bad idea. And uh, we spent the next 17 hours fighting off thousands of people, and we didn't have night vision, we didn't have any water, we, didn't, we ran out of medical supplies because everybody was bleeding out and uh, had zero food. And that really takes a toll throughout the night and, and takes away all of your advantages that you have over the enemy. No night vision. The enemy lives there. They live in those houses that now you're occupying. They know the streets, and I had no idea where I was in that town. And I'm 26 years old, and I'm asking my team leader, are we, are we going to make it out of here? And his answer was, I hope so. And I'm like, great. You know, I'd, I'd hope for a good lie at this time, but I didn't get one. So that entire night was, was life-changing for, for me and everybody that was with me because at, at one point I remember the commander said, just, we're not going to make it, so do what you have to do to prepare yourself. And uh, I just had a little moment with myself and decided, well, I'm not making it, so I'm going to take as many people as I can with me and save as many of my brothers as I can, and hopefully they'll make it. And that's, that's when my life changed. Um, you have to throw some things out the door to do some things in life that, that most don't have to. And I had to throw everything in my life out the door that day immediately just to get by the rest of the night. Um, the night went on just like that all night long. People two feet from you crawling up on you trying to get, get at you with, with their AKs and RPGs and grenades. Um, to the next morning when we finally had two armored vehicles make it to our position. The others were about a mile away. They couldn't get down the streets. And you could hear the gunfire going off all night long. And uh, they made, two of them made it to us. They pulled the helicopter off of the pilots' bodies. And that's the only reason we stayed there. We couldn't get the pilots' bodies out. And we weren't going to leave them. Loaded the bodies on top, went to climb in the back, and they were so full of all the wounded that the remainder of us had to run the Mogadishu mile out. Again, out of ammo, out of water, had no water. Um, another mile back on the streets with about half of what we came in with. And surprisingly enough, we, you know, the next morning got back to that, that, um, that convoy of tanks and, and armored vehicles that we didn't even have. They were Pakistani Malaysian. And they didn't want to be there. And they were just shooting in every direction. And it was, it was one of those moments that you can't, you can't truly explain. You can't capture it in a movie. It wasn't captured in Black Hawk Down. They captured some chaos. But you can never truly capture that moment of, you should be dead. You shouldn't be here. And who, who gave up their life in order to help you stay alive? So it was a horrible 18 hours of a lot of lessons learned, though. A lot of life lessons learned there. So Jen, we'll uh, turn to you for a second. So you obviously, uh, you two met, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but you know, you're doing counseling and, and doing things for veterans. And so in your work, what is it about what you're doing when you get guys like Tom that come back and they need to talk to you? 
How are you helping them? Um, so back up a little bit. I came from the creative arts, so I don't have a um, degree in therapy. I'm not a therapist or a doctor or a counselor of any kind. Really, I became more of a den mom, I guess you could say. I started working with Tom. We met. Um, I started working in special operations as the person carrying the camera around. So pretty much became invisible to the room. I would go on stateside missions with Green Berets, SEALs, Rangers. <clears throat> so usually it was like, I don't know, 30 to 90 guys and then me, um, the girl in the camo pants with the camera um, in the corner. So we would go on these missions frequently. So I started to recognize some of the guys and, and really the commanders even more than um, the young guys. And they started asking me like, okay, well, how are you helping Tom with his PTS? And I saw your Facebook post and can I call you and, and talk to you? I don't want to talk to you in front of these guys. And I said, well, yeah, okay, sure. Um, and then that just started with one person saying, well, can you talk to my wife now? Or can you, I've got another guy who needs help. Can you talk to him? And so it just begun this chain where really it, it got to the point where I was on the phone 11 hours a day. like. He would, like, I'm on the phone and he's showing me his phone. He's like, I got another one. Like, I got another one. I got another one. Um, and so you learn about boundaries in that situation, too. But also, what surprised me was the commonality is that, you know, it didn't matter if it was a Green Beret or a SEAL or a Ranger or a Delta guy. It really didn't matter. Trauma's trauma. Um, that kind of trauma is unique um, because it, it's, a career injury that keeps happening over and over and over again. Like seeing a car accident and being part of that's awful. Um, being um, some kind of individual trauma is awful. These guys were expected to go back over and over and over again and revisit that trauma and, and really not get any space from it. So, you know, after I saw Black Hawk Down, I'm like, how, how did he come back at all after that? How did he survive? Nonetheless, going back to Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, uh, South America serving across the world. That was his first mission. He did 20 years after that of, uh, I don't want to say missions like that, but certainly you were engaged in your, um, a lot of loss of friends that you yep. watched die, a lot of um, people who didn't come back on your watch. And as a leader, that's even harder. It's the thing that he struggled with most was sending guys in. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how the foundation started years ago was this lead up to everyone has this same conversation yet no one is having it. It's the secret um, veil that's being worn by these guys because they're expected to be so tough and, and, and not show weakness, which is vulnerability, which is courage. So there's all of these mixed messages that are happening that are delivered so these guys can do their jobs so that we stay safe. Um, they're the sacrifice. Yeah. It was a dance floor, you know, there's, it's always empty. There's, nobody wants to ask a question until, you know, you ask the first question for Stacy. Nobody wants to ask those questions. Nobody wants to be the first right. on the dance floor. We all fear that. We all don't want to ask the silly question or, or, or be the first one out there dancing crazy, right? I mean, none of us want to, but as soon as there's a couple out there, it's okay. So we chose to be those couple on the dance floor first. Well, and I would assume in that, in your world, I mean, to share your feelings and, you know, to get in a touchy-feely situation, right? That's not normal in the way you guys are trained. I catch a lot of hell for it, yeah. <laughs> Seriously, to the point of um, yeah. <laughs> just, just post about being happy. 
Yeah. Have friends hit me on the side. Hey, are you hanging out with your hippie friends in St. Louis now? You're posting some nice stuff. I'm like, I know it's crazy. It's I, I'm happy. It's <laughs> right. weird. I don't get it, but it's I'm fighting it, but right. it's taking me over. You know, it's, yeah. it's I can't. Yeah. And they were like, I don't know if I if I go to a therapist, does it make me a wussy? I'm like, I don't know. I'm going right. once a week at least, and more right. if I could afford it. You know, so sure. And do what you want to do, but nobody hits me publicly. They're always, I see what you're doing, and it's awesome. Right. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know anybody even saw what we were doing, because nobody wants to comment or like on right. it, because it's not a good subject, really. It's the, the men don't want the wives to admit that the men need help. The wives don't want to admit they need help, because the men will get mad at them, or, or spouses. I, mm -hmm. I say spouses, no, not wives and men, because sure. women in combat roles now, and, and good on them. Um, but nobody wants to admit it. It's, it's tough to get them now. But so you that's told part me. of survivability too. Like that's the other side of it, sorry. No, but no, go ahead. The survivability, to be able to do what he had to do meant um, that he couldn't engage in those emotions. He couldn't think about his wife and kids back home. He couldn't think about what was going on. He had to think about the mission, how to get in, how to get out, not even for his own life, but his men, yeah, their lives. Yeah, other people, right? So there, yeah. when you say, okay, you've got to shut everything down, to perform overseas. You can't have empathy, you can't have compassion. There's very little spot for love and that all the emotions that come along with it. But now you're done with your tour where you're out five, four or five nights, or four or five times a night over four months and then you're home with your wife and kids who are complete strangers who don't understand what you've been through. Oh, flip that switch of empathy back right. on. <laughs> switch compassion back on, switch love back on. And in a week you're gonna go train for two weeks, and then you're going to be home for a week, and then, oh, you got a call, you're, you're going back to Afghanistan. There's no space for right. it. I remember we, uh, I don't know if, Julie, if you remember this, we went to a birthday party. One of our friends came back from a long deployment, and the, one of the rules was they couldn't have balloons at the birthday party, right? Because you hear one of those things pop. Yeah. I mean, it was immediately going to, right, get in that guy's head. And so I just, it is fascinating to think about how, we, as Americans, you know, we get our freedom, and yet you guys have to go shut everything off. It's, it's incredible. And I'd say hats off to the two of you for what you're doing to help other people. And for you, Tom, to be vulnerable like that and be transparent and, and your friends make fun of you. They're hanging out with all the hippies. And what do you, <laughs> well, what do you think they'd think about today if you're up here doing this, right? They're living inauthentically because, and I was my entire life, and I chose to live authentically. And if, you, if I asked anybody in this room, especially the men, sorry, um, who, who's ever been vulnerable? Who goes and creates vulnerability every day? Who, who puts it out there every day? We all do. I mean, if you get anywhere, you do. Because vulnerability is number one. The first thought in your head is, I'm gonna fail. I'm gonna fail, right? Well, everybody fails. Raise your hand if you've never failed. No, no hand will go up. But vulnerability has to come first, and it takes courage to be vulnerable to succeed. So you have to be vulnerable. You, you're, you will always be vulnerable. So to say I'm not vulnerable, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna get it out there and air it out, or I don't have feelings, or I'm not afraid of something is ridiculous to even try to, to perpetuate that myth any further in life, yeah. ever. Yeah. So a couple years ago, you and I were talking, and you said, um, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. Talk to us about that, because you can also transfer that to the boardroom, right? That's, to, that's in everything you do, um, everything you do. It, it, rehearsals, practice, everything goes with it. I, we practiced all day long. I mean, I would, I would get up at four or earlier, I would work out, then ride my bike 12 miles to work, then work out, and then shower, and then work all day, and at 11 or 10.30, stop and work out again, eat lunch, 
go back down and work all day and then work out again and then ride my bike home and probably work out and go to bed. Wake up, do it again every day. I, I did that to be where I was. I made that decision, but I knew that the alternative was to be bad at my job, right? <laughs> and it's all, the tools of our, it's all the tools of our job, whether it's a weapon, for my job was my tool. I was very good at my weapon. With my weapon, I was very good at close quarters battle. I could run into, inside anybody's house, not knowing the floor plan, turn a corner and, and take down any, any threat along the way. And then we could be done with a, a, a place you know, this size you know, or a warehouse in 15 seconds and be done running towards each other, not shooting each other, but shooting only the bad guys right where they need to be and, and stopping when we need to stop. I mean, to get to that level, you have to practice every moment of every day. You don't have to take it to that level. You know, just any job, what level of effort do you put into it? Right? When you go to the boardroom and, or you have to do a big briefing, everybody's terrified. I'm nervous to be up here right now. And all I'm doing is talking about my life. I don't have to memorize anything. But we all want to do well. The easiest way to do well is to be so good at it, or at least know your job and know that what you're doing is legally, morally, and ethically right, that you don't have any qualms about it. You feel comfortable in what you're doing. So you can just relax and sit up and, and talk about what, what it is that you know. Because whenever you're nervous in a meeting or, or at work, it's because you forgot to do something, you didn't do something, or you chose not to do something, and you're not ready. So you're terrified. You know, rightfully so, you're going to get in trouble or look bad. So the more effort and preparation you put into anything, when it matters the most, is when it's going to come out. Because your body's going to go back to what it knows. It's going to go back to what it's been doing. It's been practicing. It's been studying. It's been reading the, the, the numbers or whatever it is you do for a living. If, you, if you've done your job, when it counts, it's going to be easy. So talk to us about, that's the physical side. So talk to us about the mental side and visualization. I'm a big believer in you become what you think about. You think about those houses, and yeah, you didn't know the floor plan, but you kind of probably knew what, what, what to expect, maybe because of visualization. Is that true? Exactly. I knew if there wasn't a door or a wall, I could keep running, right? I mean, <laughs> but you have to visualize that, or you're going to turn and run into the wall. Oh, there's a wall there. I used to get into arguments with people. If I throw a baseball at you and you turn around and see it coming, you duck. What was that? Oh, it's a reaction. Was there any thought in that? No, it's a reaction. What's the first thing you did before you ducked? I saw baseball, so I ducked. So it was reaction. You thought baseball. So you always think first. You will always have a thought first. Your thoughts become your words, become your actions. Visualization is exactly that. I would visualize myself during training, shooting, a, shooting an event, if I'm doing a, an IPSC event or, or a competition shooting, which is just training for me to shoot under pressure and stress and have to do well because it gets your heart rate up, your, your breathing's up and exaggerated, and you have to run around, and that's exactly what combat is. Combat's not you stretch your neck and your arms, and you pull your weapon out and shoot some bad guy. You know what I mean? You're going to be like terrified. He's trying to shoot you too, by the way. So your heart rate, your heart rate's going to be up. You're going to be breathing heavy, and you're going to be like this. So if I can practice like that and bring it in, then I'm going to be okay. So I visualize myself doing that. I visualize myself winning the event, and guess what? I visualize myself doing it wrong. And what would I do if that happens? People are like, I oh, visualize yourself winning, winning, winning. I wish I always won. I really do. I try every time, but it's never happened. So I visualize myself messing it up or somebody else messing it up and how we would fix that along the way. So we took it a step further. But if you see it in your head over and over again, when it happens in life, you'll react to it. And it's muscle memory. And then you just get it done before you think about it. Because if I have to think about 
shooting properly in my front sight, my rear sight, my trigger control, my breathing, my squeeze, my grip. Here we go. I'm not thinking about if that person's armed or if there's a person behind them or if there's somebody coming from my right or left. If I know I can shoot so well that I can not think about that, it's muscle memory, I can think about everything else in the room going on, I can do my job even better. No, but you got, I'm pretty, I can sit here all day and listen to this stuff. <laughs> um, so how do we stay calm under pressure though? Because I mean, you make it sound easy right, right there, but that is not <laughs> it's easy. It's very easy. Yeah. It's very, very easy. But, and again, <laughs> think about the boardroom or an operating room or, you know, whatever you're doing in your world, there, there's those moments, right? Our heart's palpitating. Maybe we're not breathing like we should be doing. How do we stay calm under pressure? Sometimes we can't. Sometimes it's just a training or the practice or rehearsal or studying that takes you through. Um, I'm always not calm under pressure, but that's where I operate the best. Um, I didn't know about it, really. I, I knew and I thought, but I, I didn't want to say, oh, it's, I'm good under pressure. And I, I've had people tell me, your calming voice on the radio was what got me through. Or, or when everybody was freaking out, you would always just stand up and look around and, and start screaming at people to go do something. And bullets are flying and you're standing up. I'm like, I, I was stupid, but I was freaking out and didn't know what I was doing. So I was just calmly telling people what to do to make things go away. Just having confidence in myself, having confidence in knowing that what I'm doing is right, and a lot of belly breathing. <laughs> belly breathing is really, really good, especially for going on stage or going into boardrooms because it stretches your stomach muscles and it relaxes them because everything tightens up around your core to protect your body when you come under stress. All those are natural responses to fear, really, right? Mm -hmm. Fear. So I, I, I'm fearful of getting on stage. I'm fearful of asking this person out on a date. I'm fearful of asking so-and-so to marry you me. You better be. Well, this, is, this is what I was thinking okay. of before I picked her up. But <laughs> haven't thought that since. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but we all have fear. And we, all, we are all afraid of something. And, and I've met guys, uh, you know, how do you run into there without fear? How do you go to war without fear? And I'm like, nobody does. And I, I, people stand up, I'm not afraid when I'm like, hey, you're just lying right now. If you're not afraid, you're a narcissist. And I don't want to be around you anyway. Right. But it's what you do with that fear. It's how you control that fear. Because we all have the same things. We all have the same anxieties. Um, just training, practice, being confident and knowing that what you're doing is right. Because as soon as you have that glimmer of this is wrong, I shouldn't be doing this, that's a thought, right? becomes a word and that becomes your action you start to pause at what you're doing because it may not be legally morally or ethically right so but dealing with pressure and stress is just knowing what you're doing and then belly breathing for me um, I, I try to figure out where it comes from does it come from my chest does it come from my stomach when the stress arises and i can identify all right that's fear or that's pressure or i'm, I'm unprepared and then i'm honest with myself about it yeah i'm unprepared i'm just going to wing it the best i can and take my hits with the rest of them so the tough guys call it belly breathing. I call it meditation. Right. Yeah. Same thing. Basically same yeah, thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I learned it through meditation, transcendental yeah. meditation, and, and from her telling me, belly breathe, it relaxes your muscles. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, it works. <laughs> so talk to us about uh, you get, when you guys uh, met, and uh, the, the, the thought I'm thinking of is you were in a parking garage someplace, and uh, some things were going through your mind. Yeah, that was a high point of my life. Um, Finished a great, well, finished a 25-year career in the Army, 20 of that in Delta, and I was, I'd been out, I'd spent a year and a half running a program in Amman, Jordan for the King, um, training their soldiers to be Special Forces qualified. And then that dried up, and I flew home, and uh, 
that's when my retirement hit, right? That's when my, my tribe went away. That's when uh, I lost vision and hope of what I was going to do. And I probably spent four months laying around in bed watching TV all night and trying to sleep all day and eating poorly and getting out of shape as fast as humanly possible and uh, wondering why I felt bad, right? Why do I feel so horrible about myself? Um, I'm a commando, right? So we lived that last high school touchdown pass, right? Most people, oh, man, remember that day I threw that? Yeah, yeah, it's gone, man. If you're not living right now, you're not living. Living in the past, it's gone. You can't take it back. You can't change it. You can learn from it. But you can't do anything in the past. In the future, you're not there yet, right? You can prepare for it, but you only can prepare for it by being here right now, being present. So that is where life is, is right here, right now. And it was, uh, I was doing entertainment with the zombies and teaching kit guys, civilians how to sh put on kit and wear a gun, and oh, I'm, I'm from Delta, and here's a Navy SEAL guy. And, you know, here's a ranger and an SF guy, and we're all, It's like you know, all you guys had your little action figures. Uh, yeah, I had, I, makeup, it was like WWE or something for, yeah. for commandos, you know. And you've got to act a certain way, and I was like, what? You've got to have some kind of persona. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I think I was, I came to be on the Adriatic Sea on a, on a cargo ship. I wasn't born. I was like, this is, this is killing me. This is uh, <laughs> acting, and I, I don't like to act. Um, and we had finished a day of, of, of filming and training and, and, and doing some of that work. And, and somebody from the camera crew was in the car, and two of my friends were in the car. We were heading to the hotel to get some, to get some drinks, which was my favorite thing to do in life at that time, was to drink. And, uh, and we got to the parking garage, and, and I was, I wasn't even driving, was I? And uh, I just told everybody, hey, go on, I got a phone call. I got to make a phone call. And uh, I didn't. I was going to shoot myself, you know. So. Everybody left and uh, said, I'll meet you down at the lobby and uh, grab some drinks later. And I sat there and I pulled my pistol out from underneath the seat. And it, it came on me in about a 10 second period. I didn't think about it all day. I thought about it on the drive back. And, uh, and I really thought about it when they, when they finally rounded the corner, went into the hallway across the, the bridge to the hotel. I pulled the pistol out and charged it. And, and I thought, well, okay, so in the mouth or the side of the head. That was my thought process. I don't want to screw this up and be a bigger burden than I already am. You know, I'm already a train wreck in life, so it's time to just, you know, take my, my, myself out of the equation. And the phone vibrated, and I kind of, oh, whatever. I don't really care about the phone anymore, right? And it vibrated again, and uh, I'm starting to think, oh, well, somebody needs something, right? <laughs> I might need to help somebody. And then um, a third time, it went off, and I picked it up to see what was going on, because it never vibrates that fast in a row. I picked it up, and the last one I saw was, um, you're late, where are you? And the other two were like, are you okay, where are you, what are you doing? And, and instantly I was late for something. I went back to the military time thing of don't be late, don't be light, don't be out of uniform. And I wasn't where I was supposed to be, and thank goodness for that. And I cleared my weapon, put it back in my bag, locked the car up, and went back down to make the meeting and didn't tell anybody what I was doing. And uh, that person ended up being her that sent me that text. And she knew how to get to me, but she didn't know what I was doing at the time. She, didn't, she wouldn't know for months. I wouldn't tell her for months about it. I wouldn't tell anybody. And even when I told her, she didn't believe me. She thought I was, uh, I don't know, I used to, I don't know. I don't know, if she, I don't know what, what you thought at the time, but I know you didn't believe me. I didn't believe me either. It was. Uh, it came on so strong and powerful. 
that I couldn't, I couldn't look away from it, mm -hmm. and I knew, I knew that I was done, and I had to be, I had to just end my own life. Why do you think you didn't, in your words there, you, that you didn't matter, that you were in the way? Why was that? I felt that way my whole life. I felt that way when I was in a unit, and I just thought it was a, I used it as a tool to get better and to be better. Well, if I'm not the best, I'm going to keep trying. But when I ran out of a reason to keep trying to be the best, I just felt like everybody was better than me, and I was just a burden. You know, I was 99% uh, my way through a divorce. Um, my son didn't know me. I was uh, always deployed and always gone, and I barely knew him at the time. And I just thought it would be better, you know, for him and his mom. I would come home from deployments, and he would freak out. He didn't know who I was. You know, it'd take about a good day for him to realize that was me or shave my, you know, my scraggly beard off my face. But um, I just saw more and more of not coming home but going to a place I used to be and trying to be there again. You know, it wasn't home. Home was deployed. Home was at work for me. Right. So what would you go back now and tell the Tom Satterley of 15 or 20 years ago? What, uh, what message would you have for that young man? Not that you're not young now, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I would, uh, I would tell myself, and hopefully I would listen, that, that I'm okay, that I'm all right. It's, it's okay to be who I am, that I'm, I'm going to be somebody, and that the things that I'm doing matter. Uh, I mean, I felt, at 15, I felt, I felt happy, but I didn't feel good enough. Uh, I didn't know where I was going. I was lost. Um, but I was always, I was picked on growing up um, by girls and guys, and I didn't, I didn't do anything about it for most of, most of those years until I totally did something about it, but I, I never felt good enough, and it, it, it really played a part in my life. Um, it still does today, really. I, I still have the complex where I don't feel good enough. I don't feel like I'm doing enough um, to either help people or to help myself. Yeah. So the work you guys are doing at All Secure Foundation, and this is for both of you, but I think it's becoming more where people are more open to talk about the suicide and how they're feeling and being more transparent. But there's still a lot of work that all of us can do and be better listeners and, and look for signs. But, and so I want to hear about that. But also, Tom, talk to our guest about the, the, just the stuff you're going through that you've been very open about on social media um, with the, the brain stuff that you're doing right now. And just so people can understand a flavor of what actually is going on in people like your life. Yeah, I started out doing nothing, wrecking my life, drinking, right? The old, the old self-medicating. And I know probably 99% of my friends self-medicate with alcohol or pills or something. And it's just accepted. So that almost wrecked my life. And so I started into anger management, which was treating a symptom. I thought, well, I'm angry all the time, so let's just get rid of the anger, right? Well. And why was I angry? I had no idea at the time. So I worked on that. Um, Jen started working on nutrition because, I mean, everything starts in the gut, right? It's like, oh, the brain, yeah, but it all starts in the gut. You don't stick a sandwich in your brain. So everything goes into your stomach, feeds your body. So if you're not, if you're not feeling right, it's like nice cars, you put nice gas in it. You take care of things you care about, but we don't take care of ourselves. And I wasn't certainly doing that. Eating better. Um, moving more. I didn't want to move because my back hurt so bad all the time, but if I moved, it felt better. So it's one of those, I need someone to kick me in the butt and kick me out the door and make me move. So Jen did that. I did uh, TM, or, uh, 
Transcendental Meditation. Transcendental Meditation. We started that for a bit. That helped a lot of calming me on the inside, bringing everything back in, and, and doing a lot of um, self-assessment. And then we did Cognitive Therapy. Still doing Cognitive Therapy. And we've, we've gone through, what, two or three therapists before mm -hmm. we found one? So my friend's like, I went to a therapist, and she or he was a, a, a quack. Well, they all are, okay? So go to one that fits with you, right? No Everybody, offense if anyone's yeah. a quack in the room. No, because <laughs> exactly. quacks know what's Sorry going on, quacks. right? They know what's going on. <laughs> and we tell them, we're like, that's weird, that's crazy. I know, but I'm happy, right? So it's like, well, I'm, I'm a raging fool, you know? And I don't, I, I, but I won't believe you, you know, because you weren't at war. Right. A lot of my friends are like, they don't know what they're talking about. They weren't at war. Like, I know, and I wasn't in college when they learned all about this either, so. Right. <laughs> Point. Right? There's always two sides of something. If, if you can just bring yourself to around to think about it, you know, you may haven't been taught that yet, so you just don't have a clue. But, and now TMS is the most recent um, trans, trans, transcranial. Tra yeah, transcranial magnetic stimulation to where, you know, they fit you with this nice blue hat on. I get to wear five mm -hmm. days a week for mm -hmm. the last. Uh, it looks like Monty Python. Six like weeks. The, uh, the helmet, Lots of post but... pictures and. Yeah. Social media with that. If you want to check it out, go to Tom Sadley uh, on Facebook, and you can see his uh, progress with this. It's been yeah, lots of videos. It's it's like going through an MRI if you've had it, but just a hat, and it's magnets that turn electricity inside your brain, and it stimulates that part of your brain that's shut off due to trauma and stress, or you depression. Know? Yeah, or depression, or anxiety, or addiction. Now, um, mm -hmm. and they attack a different port part of the brain with that. Um, and, and the most it felt like, other than the noise, every Every 15 seconds, they go off for 10 seconds for about 20 minutes, five times a day, or five days a week um, for about six weeks, and then three times a week, and then I'm down to two times a week, and I'm on my last two this week. I'll have two more sessions, a total of 36 sessions. And it uh, stimulates that part of the brain of mine that's been shut down, um, that allowed me to deal with all the trauma and stress that turned off my empathy caused anxiety, caused me to be a little bit more OCD than normal, because that was how I controlled things. Dirty dishes in the sink. Kids, you know, I just cleaned this kitchen an hour ago, and it's already messy. What do you think kids do for a living? I mean, that's <laughs> that's living, their job, right? for crying out loud. So why would it make me angry? Uh, my brain thought that that was life and death situation. Like every situation in my life is life and death, because that's what it was. So dirty dishes are life and death. So that stresses me out. Dirty house is life and death. You know, things that are ab abnormal, even though my whole world was never, not, not, never on a schedule, things that are off schedule now would set me off. Um, birthday parties, I'd walk in, hey, the kid, kids are here. I'm like, oh, hey, what do we do now? <laughs> I need about 30 minutes to, to ease into that because it, it takes, takes me by surprise. After TMS, I'm, I'm feeling like, okay, more and more like normal. My empathy's back. Um, yeah, he was watching TV. He's like, what is this? I, I'm feeling this and this. This person did that. I'm like, that's empathy. <laughs> like you're, you're putting yourself in their in shoes. Or, yeah, I'm like, yeah, really, or, I'm crying for this that? person now instead of just I'm crying. I'm like, that's compassion. But, I mean, I'm watching home improvement shows. I'm crying on the reveal. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that I kept to myself for a bit. Like, and then, so I, then, everybody then I threw else it out there, and the somebody's same. like, hey, you know, me too, me too. I'm like, I got the me too movement going on here with this <laughs> crying on home, home improvement shows. A lot of my friends were like, oh, I do the same thing. I go, it's your, it's your emotions, man. I mean, that means they're working. That's, your body's supposed to do that. Do you think you invented crying? <laughs> you know, do you think you invented a nervous feeling or, or, or jittery emotions? Those are to protect you.
You know, just like your body protected you through all the trauma you went through, and it's still protecting you, we just need to tweak it a little bit. So a lot of people are now getting on TMS and posting it on social media, and I get a lot of thank you, a guy, a badass like you, a CSM and the unit, I'm like, oh, here we go. Yeah, I'm not good with that. I've learned to say thank you, but I'm not good with that. Because we all have a job to do, we all get affected by different things, and we all have the same issues in the end. You know, we want to fit in, we want to be part of something, and we want to feel like we're accepted. And uh, it's really no different, no matter what you do for a living, right? Acceptance is what we all crave. And you have to be vulnerable to be accepted. And when you fight that, you're just fighting your natural ability, your body's natural ability to protect itself. So TMS has turned that back around, I think. Um, some friends of mine went through it a couple years ago, mm -hmm. and they're going back um, for another round of sessions out in California. But it lasted them about two to three years. Um, and he's, he's not back to the level he was, but he feels it a bit. So he's like, I'm going to go back. Yeah. I'm going to go back and get back to where I was feeling good again, you know, at the top of my game. So it took me back to feeling like I, I did emotionally out of high school when I first joined the military before, say, 93. And, uh, you know, everything after 93 was just a fog and a cloud of, of hate and anger, yep. you know, because I thought that's the way I had to be. So we're going to talk about one of those missions here in a minute. But, uh, Jen, talk to our guest about All Secure Foundations and the work that you all are doing, how they can help, uh, how we can all help, um, and what exactly you're doing for veterans sure. today. We started out as a resource library um, as a girlfriend and spouse of someone um, who had combat injury. I didn't know where to go or who to turn to for help. So really when we started this, initially it was a resource library. So look, here's resources for alcohol, drug abuse, pill abuse, uh, anger issues, uh, home issues. So we had all these wonderful tabs with resources and then we started getting asked, well, we really love your message and what you're doing. We want to come to you guys to get the information and help. So we've brought in a CEO, um, an amazing um, gentleman by Robert Gowen who was Army um, Ranger and rose the corporate ladder, senior vice president of Anthem Healthcare, decided I don't want to do the corporate thing anymore. Luckily, found us. I begged him to come on at a very small fraction of his salary to help us out. But again, you want to find the people who are passionate about your mission and your vision and are willing to sacrifice along with you to, to make it happen. So we've brought him in. We've brought Wanda Crawford in. She was a command social worker, so she worked with all the generals at Special Operations. She had a tough job. At Joint Special Operations Command, so the command level of all of the tactical arm of Special Operations. And I asked her for a resume, and then I was like, oops, mm. when I got it, you know, like, oh, you've done a few things. You work with Brene Brown. Okay. Mm. Um, I guess you're good enough for us. But um, <laughs> So we've brought in some talent. We're going to start doing workshop retreats in August. We'll do 8 to 15 a year for Special Operation groups. So about 20 to 25 couples at a time. Um, they're going to show up and work with us. This is not just like, hey, you're going to go fishing. Yeah, these aren't great, vacations and let's go fishing with Mickey, you know. Um, although we're going to have to like dress it up a little bit. Yeah. Nobody will come. But, um, <laughs> but we actually have a very long waiting list uh, for people who want to attend, who want to create that dialogue, who want the awareness, who want the resources. Um, and so it's, it's very positive. We're actually starting to work directly with the DOD, Department of Defense, uh, with the Air Force Pararescue Group. Um, so it's, we're seeing signs that we didn't see five years ago where the military is actually saying, okay, well, 
Special Operations had a triple amount of suicides last year. Active duty. Active duty. Um, SEALs is up, Green Berets up, Rangers, MARSOC. Every single unit had doubled or tripled their suicide in 2018. So no longer can we just say, well, this is an issue for the VA when they get out. You know, I'm talking to guys on the phone that are 28 years old um, who are on their second wife and about ready to be on their third, and they don't understand why. So we have to educate. We have to create awareness. We have to do that with the spouse. We can't say, hey, we're going to help you, and you're going to get all better, and then you're going to go home to a broken home where the wife has PTS. We know that wives of soldiers with PTS are also diagnosed with PTS, children of combat uh, veterans also are committing suicide at 10% rate higher than civilian children. So we have this war on our home front in America. It doesn't look like the overseas um, where you've got women and children in rubble and buildings are falling down and you could say that's a war affected country right. and women and children are suffering and it's these guys that go over and actually help. Um, but their wives and children are left to home with no resources for help. And so um, we've got this battle-torn country that's behind suburban houses. And none of the wives want to speak up because they don't, they feel like, oh my gosh, if I say something, my husband can lose his job or his clearance. Um, he'll be very upset with me. Um, so we created a, a secondary group called Virago. That is for women supporting other women who have combat-related um, PTS in the family which is, you know, I, I started and I thought, oh, we'll get a couple, you know, comments here or there. My phone was blowing up for a week solid. And like, talk about crying. I just sat there and he's like, are you all right? What are you doing? And I'm like, read this from this wife. And nobody's doing it. We, we, we send the veterans away. We get help for the veterans. The veterans go to the VA. Or we send them to Warrior's Heart for mm -hmm. six, eight weeks and they get off them meth and heroin and alcohol and they, and they learn how to Opioids. find their faith yeah. again and, and they come home like, honey, I'm home. I'm all better now. But you've had three affairs. You left me with the kids, you know, and you've drained the bank account. Welcome home, honey. I'm all better now. You know, so the wives are just being left in the cold. So, so that's the focus of our foundation truly is equally um, supporting the family unit, healing the warrior and the home front. Allsecurefoundations.org. You got it. Allsecurefoundations.org. So check that out. So, Tom, talk about all the stuff you've done, and I know that uh, we'll answer some questions here, but uh, what, what are your passions today? I mean, you've, you've been through so much, and, and what are your passions today, and, uh, and what do you spend the rest of your life doing? Wow, my passions today are, are um, one, continuing to help myself, because I know I found out that the more I do self-care, the more I can help others, because my main passion is to get these tough guys to, to understand and realize that it's not weakness to have an issue and it's okay that you can drop that, that curtain, you know, and expose your true self. It's okay, you did a great job, let it go. Let's, let's, let's do something else in a different realm or, or whatever, but pull away from this anger and this hatred that you're living, because I know it's fake. It, it's, it's a mask that we, we, we put on to go do the things we have to do. So. If I could get them to drop that mask and to get them to admit in the DOD that it's not weakness, that people need help, and they're starting to a little bit, but they're very resistant to it. You know, we don't do vulnerability. We, we don't fail. It's bad for recruiting. It's a no-fail mission. Well, failure is where you learn, right? So we would never learn without failing, and I've, I've failed repeatedly in my entire life. It's just if you don't get back up, that's where you stop. And 
And I want people to realize that change is inevitable and change is good because the guy's like, I don't like change. I like to stay where I'm at. Well, you had to change to get there. And if you do nothing more, you're going to wither and die. And that's change. And that's a bad change. So you might as well work with it and do the good change because you're going to change. You're never going to stay the same. Nobody's the same as they were a week ago. I mean, things affect you and you change and you alter your path. Good or bad. Right, good or bad. And if it's bad, you deal with it and you get back up and you keep going. You know? And if it's good, you ride that wave until you get smacked by the bad one because it's coming again. It, it's always on its way. So what questions from the, uh, from the audience? Anybody have questions for Tom and Jen? Anybody want to want to share? Somebody's pointing... Right over here, John Fisher. Uh, Tom, first of all, thank you for your service. Thank you. Uh, you, know, you mentioned that you started this off talking about you didn't have any goals, right, uh, when you joined the Army. And then you went on to join the most elite ranks of, uh, I'm sorry, Army military. Uh, the most elite ranks of the military. Um, uh, you talk about being picked on and not feeling good enough as a kid. It'd be pretty good propeller. Right? I'm just curious. How did you go from not just going from no goals to the military, but to one of those elite plates? And what was your what was your why that drove you to such elite uh, category among all men and women? I didn't like where I was. I didn't have a goal to be somewhere, but I knew I didn't like what I was doing. Motor pool Mondays. I was a regular. I was a, a twelve Bravo. I was a spe I was a combat engineer. So. I got to put up concertina wire and, and blow up concertina wire or build bridges or blow up bridges for, for the tanks and the infantry guys. So I was an infantry guy with a shovel is what I called us as a combat engineer. Um, and the people that I was surrounded by, I didn't feel were inspired. I didn't feel had dreams to be anything other than what, I, what they were. So therefore, I had no other dreams to be anything else other than the people around me. Right? We come, become like the five people we surround ourselves with the most. So. I was surrounded by mediocre people who just were happy to not be living in a trailer park, or they got out of high school and they joined the military, and here I am, I'm like, oh, I gotta be better than this. I have to be better than this, or I'm not if I stay here. So after having um, the first platoon to go to French commando school, I got a little taste of something different, something more exciting, something better. And then they had a German Ranger School slot show up, and I think about 800 to 1,000 people tried out for it, and I won the one slot that they had for German Ranger School. And when I got out of that, I, I almost, well, I thought I was crazy for being there at the time, but when I graduated and it was over, I thought, wow, that was amazing. I could do more with this training. Um, and then it, was, it, was, it came to a time of, okay, you're at your four years. Either get out or re-enlist. And I, and I wanted to re-enlist for Special Forces. Because a friend of mine showed me a picture of his father in Vietnam had a Green Beret on holding him as a baby, and he wanted to be a Green Beret. <laughs> but he had already left Germany a year prior, and now it's my turn, so I kind of took on his dream, like, well, I'm going to be a Green Beret, too. But I couldn't. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let me re-enlist to be a Green Beret because I had been promoted too fast. I missed a school, so I needed the school first. So I just re-enlisted re for Airborne School. And that's kind of when I started finding more goals, like, okay, Special Forces is, is not just a school. It's an actual six-month course that changes my entire life. And then language school after that. And, and in language school, I was approached by some guys in the unit that were going through the Q course. and like, we think you have what it takes to be in Delta. And I go, OK, what's that? Let's try that one. I mean, I just, I just kept looking for something more without an idea of the end state in mind. Um, I really stumbled into a lot of it. I had no plan at that age. And I was 23, 24 years old. 
Literally. You think also but, though, you think about the leadership of that though. The people are also seeing things in you before you saw were. them in yourself. I just we just ran into a friend of his. He hasn't seen in thirty years, something like that. Lives in town here. Right? Yeah, he lives, lives in, in town. town we're at Twisted Tree, and he comes to the you know he comes back from the bathroom, and I'm like, okay, well that was a long time. Like, <laughs> like oh, I saw a friend. Like normal. <laughs> like I've gone through Instagram and Facebook. Like what's right. going on? But he had run into a guy he served with in Germany. And so he's like, somebody I served with in Germany is here. I'm like, wow. oh, I got to meet this guy. And he had said, he goes, I, I knew, I knew. And you were 19 years old at that time. Like he goes, I heard later on you had made Delta. And everybody was like, of course, Saturday made it. Like he was promoted through top ranks by the time he was done with basic. He was one of the youngest guys to be in Delta. So you could say you didn't you didn't have that specific end goal of Delta, but from the time you hit basic, you wanted to succeed and you worked hard to succeed and you did the right things and, and you know, built so that was, ladder. I was born with it. <laughs> well, you're, yeah. That's what I'm hearing. That you're next born with it. <laughs> Your next zap of the brain is gonna open the awareness. Yeah. Yes. As well. I like, wow, yeah. I was really lucky my whole life. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for a great question, John. Uh, other questions, Ryan? I got a question and maybe a follow-up question. Are you able to watch like American Sniper and Home Survivor and the modern day one? I've literally not seen those. I, I, I watched Black Hawk Down once. I walked out on Saving Private Ryan. Um, we try to watch it again this year, 3 October. and I literally just got emotional. I, I, I can't. I, one, I don't like some of the stuff that they do. They glorify it. And then two, I know what really happens, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to go there anymore. <laughs> I used to live in it. I, I used to watch cops and anybody getting pulled over. That's awesome. You know, you did something wrong, you deserve it. You know, I, I, uh, I, I used to crave those shows. Still a little shows. bit do. Yeah. <laughs> Until I sprinkled in HGTV. Yeah. Now I watch home improvement shows because we're redoing our house. So <laughs> that's what. That's who I am now. <laughs> no more questions after that. No follow up. Tim, yeah, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about your father and the role he played when you were growing up? Absolutely. Uh, sadly, I just lost my father uh, this last December. And, uh, and like most kids, probably don't realize what their father taught them. Like my son won't know until I'm dead. Um, he was so calm and so, like, let me fall on my face growing up, like, wow, you know. Like, should have been caught by somebody. Had I been caught my whole life, I'd have never learned the actual lesson. And he let me, he let me do what I, what I needed to do in life. Um, you know, he punished me when I, when I did wrong. He let me fall on my face a lot. And then he, he was always there and always loved me um, to the end. To the end, he was the man that I never knew until the end that was, there was no quit in him. I mean, he, he went to, he was, he was going to AA with my mom for seven years, seven some years before he died and, and he got pulmonary fibrosis and we found out early in 2018 when we were on a speaking engagement in Montana, a lot of crying on the phone to, oh, dad's going to be okay, to he's got years to live, to I'm, I'm doing another mission, another job in Florida in December and oh, your dad's in the hospital, but he'll be home out for Christmas to we go to visit him and he's dead on Sunday. We get there on a Friday, he's dead Sunday. Monday, yeah. Monday, but I, I didn't realize till I heard one of his sponsors in AA talk at his memorial about how when 
he got that diagnosis, him and his sponsor went out. And he's like, what are you asking? It seems like you're asking for permission to have a beer or something, you know? I mean, go for it. You're dying. I mean, what's, what's, what's the point anymore? And, he, and I think he said, I wouldn't want to let my kids down and start drinking. And I never thought he wasn't an alcoholic. He did it for my mother, who was. So he just stopped drinking for her. But I, I, didn't, know, I didn't even know that about him until then. And, but he taught that, and I never, I never realized it. You know, it always seems too late that you, you, you realize what your parents have done for you, you know, because we are who we are based off of who raised us, right? And uh, I just never thought about that until it was too late. You know, he knew I loved him, and, and I know he loved me, but I took off at night. He was there for you. He was always there for he me. He was there for you. Even, even when I Around took off at lot. 19 and never went back home ever. I've never m lived at home, never lived in Indiana again. I mean, I visited. Uh, but my brother and sister still live there, and, and they were very close. Very, we're very, very close family, but as I look at it from now, I look back, I'm like, I was the outsider because I was always gone just like with my own life, my own family. But he taught me, you know, to never quit and that failure is, is what you have to do to learn or you truly don't learn the lesson. Great question. Other questions? Tom, uh, thank you for your service. Thank you. And, uh, Jim, thank you for what you're doing. Um, Two of you have obviously got it, I mean, because it happened to you. Uh, what's it going to take for the VA to slowly come around and, and start giving some of our veterans the help that they, they need? That's a great question. Yeah. And actually, last year, I think 2017, the VA had a $6 million budget to address veteran suicide. Of the $6 million, they spent 57000 which is equivalent to a salary. So we believe that that probably was a government salary of that chunk. Um, they have been asked to, now they're under investigation, why none of that money was spent. Um, that was just their marketing budget. So that was their marketing to create awareness and programming to allow people to know that there's help. So none of that money was spent in 2017. We don't work with the VA simply because it's a massive, massive organization. Um, a lot of the nonprofits in the veteran sector have moved on beyond it because we can't get anything done within it. And it's not to say, well, we're going to give up, but we have not 22 veterans committing suicide a day like we're being told, um, but closer to 30 to 35 veterans. That's equivalent to all of Iraq and Afghanistan. Every life lost in combat um, tripled, so every year. So we have an epidemic that's not being talked about. Um, the VA doesn't have a handle on it. The military says, well, that's bad for recruitment. Um, they're like, hey, you want to join us? You'll probably end up shooting yourself, but, right. you know, hey, sign up here. Um, not going to happen. So really, it's going to come from individual organizations. It's going to come from the Warrior Hearts and the uh, Mission 22s and, and people that are stepping up saying, I can't look the other direction. I have to be part of the solution. We're not getting it done here, so let's go get it done here, which is what we've done. What we're doing has to be generational. You can't tell the leaders now to start and say that everything you've done in the past is wrong, change. It's got to be the kids growing up now that, that change it. And we're seeing a lot of it. It's, and the VA is serving 23 million people. 23 we're, not million. About, we're not about veterans complaining and living under the bridge. And the VA is horrible. It's such a big organization. Of course it's horrible. <laughs> go somewhere else. Go, go do something else. But, you know, 
you can't join the military for three, three years and then get out and expect free health care for life to be right. amazing. You can't fund that. I mean, the reality of it is it's funding. You can't fund something that huge and do the work you need to do when we've been at war for 19 years. Not to count Vietnam and anyone alive from other wars and their family members and, and other missions in life that military people go on or the training that you go through that's dangerous, that affects you. There's a lot of people affected. Um, we're not about the homeless veteran on the bridge screaming for money and poor me either. Go make something of yourself. You still have to go put in the work. Just because you retire doesn't mean you, you give me free ice cream and 10% off everywhere I go. Go get a job, dude. Go, go work somewhere. I would ride a garbage truck if I had to to pay for my family. I mean, that that's, takes dedication no matter what you're doing. So. All right, well, uh, Kate. What can people like us do to help get involved? I love that question. What can people like questions. us do to help get involved? Was the question. We, we do love and we do hate that question. <laughs> because we get asked by thousands of people, oh, or, or just, I want to help. I want to, what can I do? And our, our question is, what can you do? Uh, everything takes money. We have people, we have therapists that have donated time. We have uh, attorneys that have donated time to help stand us up. We haven't paid ourselves a penny since we started. We finally paid somebody. Everybody but us. Everybody but, but it us. Takes, it takes putting the right pieces into place, and that takes money. So just like we just heard raising capital, that's part of it. Um, we have to fund. All of the veterans and their spouses come to our retreats completely free. So they attend a three-day uh, seminar workshop for free. Not um, completely free, something. however. They have to pay for their travel. Yeah, excluding travel. you got to get there. you got to show some. They have to put skin some. in the game, or they'll yeah. back out. If it's too easy, they'll back but out. But really... If you just turn the question back on yourself, how can I help? Everyone in this room has a skill, has a passion, um, has a dedication. It might not be to what we're doing. Um, it might be, hey, I, um, you know what? I, I love carpentry work, and I love doing that on the side. I can help by donating um, wounded warriors who now have to have their houses refitted for um, wheelchairs. We know guys that volunteer and, and give their time on the weekends to go work with Habitat for Humanity. They have a veteran-specific group that does work. So we've had accountants call us and say, I'll donate my services um, to help you get your taxes done and get things done, and, or attorneys who have donated to help us get our 501c3. So it, it just depends. You know, We've got other financial groups that are like, hey, we can bring you money. Great. You know, However you want to help, whatever that service means to you, that's where you could help. That's how you can help. We're at a minimum, awareness, help with awareness. People are like, I love what you're doing. I know, but you've never shared it on Facebook. And I know we keep going back to social media, but that's like the free marketing. If you're not at least hitting like and share or sharing or, or making one comment of showing support, then you're not supporting at all. You're, you're just standing by watching. Not you specifically. <laughs> share away, Kate. Share right now. Right now. <laughs> you heard him say it. Well, uh, if we can have Tim and Jana come up, uh, just well, first off, just Tim and Jen, uh, Tim, Tim and Jim, Tim, Tom, Jen, they're all around. Uh, Tom and Jen Sadley, thank you very much for being thank up here with us today and us. being here. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so nice to meet you. Thanks, brother. Thank you.
So they'll probably hopefully stick around if you can. Stick around for a little bit if you have other questions or just want to have a, a side comment with them. But thanks to everybody. I'm sure Jana and Tim have a few words to say, but I just personally want to thank everybody for being here. I know it's a long time commitment and your dollars to be here and uh, just uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, just on behalf of Visionary and the Circle of Success, uh, we'd like to thank our sponsors one more time. 60 West, KPMG, the Blair Agency with Capitus, the big 550 KTRS, Putnam Investments, Pure 111, Medical Aesthetics, Brokerage Unlimited, Lincoln Financial Distributors, Benefits Plan Plus, Pacific Life, and Charles Schwab. And we just know it takes a lot to take a day off like this and for students in the room and spouses and friends and working people, it's just amazing to have you all here. So we're very thankful and feel very blessed to have you guys as part of our family. So thank you. Thank you to Brett and Tim for making this day possible too and for sponsoring and for all the work, Brett, that you put into uh, making this day possible. This is really your brainchild. So second year in the books and look forward to seeing y'all next year. Tune in next week for another episode of the circuit of success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.